So today we are continuing our series in the uh, Book of the Twelve, and we'll be in Habakkuk. So if you want to turn there, we'll be going through that. But first, uh, there are these things in life that we call um, guilty pleasures, and there's nothing sinful about them, but they're just things that we, that we enjoy, um, and we're not really proud of them. And so uh, for some of you, that might be uh, Yacht Rock. Uh, if you don't know what it is, uh, go check it out, look it up. Uh, but I'm, oftentimes now in conversations, people are talking about, oh, you've got to watch this great show. There's this great series that we're watching. You can binge watch it in, in a week or, or whatever. But th- that conversation comes up a lot. My guilty pleasure is not good TV, but is what I would call trash TV. And so it's usually some mindless reality TV show. And it's usually some subculture that's foreign to me, but I just, I just find it incredibly fascinating. And so Hoarders was one of those shows. There would be someone whose house was so full of junk uh, that it would keep them uh, from living in, in, in their house or a bedroom or it, there was just stuff everywhere because they just needed more and more stuff. Uh, and there was always some kind of intervention, usually from the family. They would sit down and say, there's too much stuff. And then... Um, of course, they would bring professionals in and they would go through it and sell it and, and clear it out. And then there's this wonderful transformation. Uh, but the episode that I remember was about uh, this lady who, who also collected many cats. And so uh, when they were cleaning out her house, uh, over the years, she would, she would lose these cats. She thought they ran away. Uh, but, but unfortunately, uh, they found out that, 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 that they found Fluffy. And uh, Fluffy was not Fluffy anymore. She was under a stack of newspapers. But why do we watch these shows? Why do we enjoy these shows? Or maybe it's just me. I think it's because it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? Um, there's some relief in thinking, well, at least I'm not that bad, right? If, if, uh, if I see a house full of junk, I don't feel so bad about my drawer full of junk, right? If you watch, if you want to feel good about parenting, watch, watch any show where they follow a family around with a TV crew, right? If you want to feel better about your singing, watch a TV show where they do singing auditions. Uh, if you want to feel better about yourself in pretty much any way, just watch anything on MTV. No, don't, don't, don't do that. It's, it's awful. Um, but some of you right now are, are in fact feeling better about yourselves because you're thinking, yeah, I, I would never watch any of these shows, right? So maybe it works either way. So if you read ahead, you know that the minor prophet Habakkuk, he's distraught over his people Judah, the southern kingdom. And the northern kingdom has been taken into uh, exile by the Syrians because of their rebellion to God. Rather than repent, rather than live righteously, they compare themselves with the northern kingdom. And uh, they were thinking, well, at least we're not that bad, right? Uh, At least we still have a king on David's throne. At least we still have our temple to worship in. They probably felt, in comparison, pretty good about themselves. All right, today we're going to look at Habakkuk, and I want to look at uh, three major uh, areas. I want to go through it and, and read what it's about then I also want to look at some answers that I think are brought up in the, that are inherent in the, in the book. And then what does that mean for us? How do we apply that to our lives? And I think that what we'll see is that Habakkuk shows us that we're to live by faith even when we don't understand what God is doing. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord, uh, open our eyes, open our ears that we would see and hear uh, what you would have us see and hear today through your word. Let us leave uh, here different than when we came in, changed uh, by the preaching of your word. God, use me, uh, and God, that we would be different, that we would be changed, that we would learn uh, and trust in you more, live lives of faith, uh, that you are good and that your commands are good, and that we would want to be obedient and follow you all our days. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So what is Habakkuk about? Uh, We don't know much about Habakkuk except for what we kind of pull out of the passage. 
And his introduction is simply Habakkuk the prophet, which may imply that, that, that he really needs no introduction. Uh, some believe that Habakkuk may have been a priest or a former priest. Uh, the last verse in the book actually describes uh, this, this song of praise that, that Habakkuk writes, and that's to be given to the choir director of my stringed instruments. And so, since the priests were the one in charge of the vocalists and the instrumentalists in the, in the temple, they think that he might have been a priest and then became a prophet. So, Habakkuk is it's a unique book. He's a unique prophet in that God does uh, call him to record the prophecy, but most of the book, when, when we get into it, is really just this exchange between Habakkuk and God. And so, we're, we're privy to uh, this exchange, this back and forth uh, between the prophet Habakkuk and God. All right, the Chaldeans uh, are mentioned, and so they were a nomadic people who lived in southern Babylon. And so they're just above where uh, Judah is. The term Chaldean uh, is sometimes used synonymously for the Babylonians uh, in general because a lot of Babylonian kings were, in fact, Chaldean. And so they were an intelligent uh, group of people. They were sometimes aggressive and warlike. And their soldiers uh, ended up being an elite and deadly fighting force for the Babylonians. And so this seems to be at a time when they were feared, they were gaining uh, power, but they were not yet, they had not yet attacked and captured Israel. And so that puts Habakkuk in the late 7th century, around 612 BC. Uh, so he's a contemporary of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Daniel, Zephaniah. And so we know from Rick's preaching last week that the Assyrians uh, were this fierce and ferocious uh, army. Uh, and they had amassed a great amount of land. Um, but in 612, the Babylonians conspired with the Medes to overthrow the Assyrians and destroy Nineveh. And so later, led by Nebuchadnezzar II, the kingdom of Judah finally fell, and the Jewish temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That was in 586. And so Jerusalem uh, uh, fell, Israel was captured, they were brought to Babylon, and they were enslaved. And so, we're going to see that Habakkuk's lamenting over the injustice of the people and the leaders is probably because it's in this time frame where uh, King Josiah had just reigned and reigned in a way that was godly. He was reforming Israel, but that has now ended. And so, due to his death, Judah is under the leadership of his successor, uh, King Jeho Jehoiakim. And this also fits well within our timeline. So, so all that stuff we just get from inside the text, um, but it's a lot of information. So this means that Habakkuk would have been the last of the minor prophets to be preaching in the southern kingdom, Judah, after the northern kingdom had been taken into exile uh, by the Assyrians, but before the southern kingdom had been taken into exile by the Chaldeans. All right, it's made up of, of three chapters. Chapters one and two, like I said, are this back and forth uh, between Habakkuk and God. And there are two complaints that come from Habakkuk, and God responds to each of those. God then gives these five woes, and you can think of it as the opposite of um, in the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, it's blessed are the, and these are going to be woe to the uh, these are not good things uh, to be called out by God. All right, chapter 3, we're going to see is this response of faith. And again, it's this, this song sung out uh, by Habakkuk. All right, let's jump into it. Uh, <clears throat> starting in verse 2, it says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so Ju Judah, I, like I told you, is, is going back to its old ways. And Habakkuk is calling out. He sees Judah's injustice. He sees their idolatry. Life in Israel has become wicked. It has become oppressive. Uh, the Torah is being neglected. And this results in violence and corruption. And the, the problem is, is that it's being corrupted even at the top levels. The judges 
uh, are allowing this to happen. This is similar to um, <clears throat> the laments that we see in Scripture, in the Psalms and in uh, <clears throat> Lamentation, where a poet lodges a complaint. He's complaining to God. He draws God's attention to suffering, to injustice. He's pleading with God, do something. But the laments always lead us back to God. So he's crying out, but nothing seems to change. And we've been there. We get this, right? <clears throat> there have been times in our life we turn on the television. Where is God? Doesn't he care? Doesn't he see what's happening? Doesn't he know he should be doing something in our own lives. Doesn't he know how important this situation is to me? Doesn't he know how dire this problem is? We even think, God, I'm praying for something good here. I'm praying for justice. I'm praying for uh, judgment on the wicked, uh, your righteousness to reign. God, I'm praying for revival in your people. Why don't you hear me? Well, God is not silent with Habakkuk. He responds. Uh, let's look at verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. God says, prepare yourself, Habakkuk. I'm going to tell you something crazy. Are you ready for it? Are you ready? Get ready. He says for in verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. This is not what Habakkuk wants to hear. And it's not like God doesn't realize what the Chaldeans are like. He, he continues, he says, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded. They are fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth to take it. They would actually take the earth. They would gr grab rubble and dirt, and they would pile it up because these places were had these huge walls. They were up on these um, plateaus, right? And so they would take the earth and they would create these siege ramps so that they could run their chariots and their soldiers up to it. This is a, a model of a Roman siege ramp. And the Romans took it to the next level. Then they would then take these towers and roll these towers up there that were then protected and could attack over the walls. This is how God describes the army that he is going to judge Judah. And this is what Habakkuk is hearing from God. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose might is their God. So God, God's aware of his corruption. He is not unaware. But his solution is to summon the armies of Babylon to bring about justice. And he says they're destructive. He says they're self-righteous. They're frightening. They're efficient. They're an unstoppable force, and they deify themselves. They worship violence. Even more so, they worship their strength, their abilities, their successes, and they're without remorse. And so what would your response be? Wait a minute. God, I know I, I, know I asked you to intervene, but, but not like this. I know I asked you to hear me. I know I asked you to do something, but, but not this, not them. Habakkuk is freaking out. He's in despair. That sounds painful. That sounds terrifying. I asked for justice. I asked for revival. Not more injustice. Not injustice on a greater scale. Not death. And so Habakkuk responds. Verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. His mind is reeling. He, he's trying to plead with God. He can't comprehend what's going on, what God is telling him, that this is the solution to his problem. Notice how he addresses God, everlasting, holy, my rock. Habakkuk doesn't know what God's doing, but he trusts God as unshakable, good, and trustworthy, 
He has faith even in this shocking revelation. And he understands that because of God's promises and God's character, Judah will not be completely destroyed. After all, the Messiah will come out of the tribe of Judah. But Habakkuk is still confused. What? Babylon is more corrupt. I, I asked you to fix the corruption, not make it worse. They're violent. And so he appeals to God's purity. He asks, wouldn't, wouldn't using unrighteous people, wouldn't using the Chaldeans to execute your judgment, d- doesn't that mar your righteousness, God? Doesn't that damage your goodness? And then he makes the case that the Babylonians, they, they capture and they kill others. Um, like a fisherman who, who drags a net across the water and pulls up a bunch of fish. Life is cheap to this conquering army. They're ruthless and they reject the true God, trusting in their military might instead. How can God use such an evil nation? Won't God tolerating them just mean that they will go on doing what they do forever? So Habakkuk doesn't get it, but he goes and he stands. Verse uh, chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Maybe he's thinking he'll change his mind, but he goes out and he, he says, I'm going to stand like a sentry uh, on, the, on the city wall and wait for God's response. Still wondering, will God simply let this rise and fall of nations go on forever? He's struggling with this problem of evil. He's doubting God. Here's God's response. He tells Habakkuk to write it down, write down this vision, make it clear that God will surely make it happen, but in God's time. This vision is that that Judah would be exiled into Babylon, but that Babylon would absolutely fall. They would get what was coming to them and that justice would be done. And we know from Scripture and history that this does happen. It happens in 539 B.C. And you can read about it in Daniel 5. So it would be another 26 years until the temple was destroyed, until Judah was exiled and captured. But it would be another 47 years after that when the, child, when the Chaldeans, they get their due, when they are destroyed. So God's uh, prophecy is that, that it's, it will be slow, but it will be eventual. And he says the Babylonians are puffed up, that they will die, but the righteous will live by faith. God will bring Babylon, his enemy, down. He will save those who trust in him. And those that do violence and those who oppress create this cycle of revenge that never ends, that they're arrogant and greedy and like death itself, they will never be satisfied. But what man means for evil, God uses for his good. And so though God may use a corrupt nation, it it in no way means that he endorses what they do. It just means that he's sovereign and powerful enough to use even evil for his good. And that all nations, all people are going to be accountable to his justice. God then gives these five woes concerning uh, the, the Babylonians and their judgment. But I would say it's as well for anyone who lives in a similar way. It's based uh, on this biblical principle of reaping and sowing that we see the first uh, woe is about extortion of the survivors who they ruled over. And so the Babylonians, they, they, they heavily taxed those that they, they brought in uh, and conquered. Even though they had destroyed their land and brought them into slavery, they still taxed them heavily. And so the poor stayed in debt. They overcharged on interest, and they built their wealth through crooked means. And so this dog-eat-dog cycle of subjugation and revenge It's going to destroy them. So God says that those who steal from others, who have abused their power, will be stolen from and abused themselves. He then talks about the exploitation of those that they conquered. 
They felt that they were untouchable, that their cities were impenetrable. And because of their covetousness, they were surrounded by uh, their contraband. Their homes were filled with stolen items. And so every rock and piece of timber would cry out that they were thieves and that they were oppressors. And they built their kingdom on these ill-gotten gains. And so God, He condemns those who seek security and wealth at the expense of others. They were ruthless despots using slave labor to build their palaces. And so this corruption, this, uh, so corruption always um, brings this type of poverty where people can, they can't image God, right? God makes us in His image to be creative, to be artists, uh, to worship. But if people are so overwhelmed with just trying to find food to put on their plate, they have no time and energy to do that, and it's, God calls it evil. They treated people like animals. They enacted violence on slaves if they didn't produce. And so like a fire that consumes everything, this labor will ultimately come to nothing. And in contrast to God's promise that all the earth would be filled with His glory, He pronounces judgment on those who would build their fame and build their wealth and build their comfort at the expense of human life. He then, he then moves on to the debauchery of the Chaldeans. They were known for encouraging drunkenness and then taking advantage of others. But God's cup of wrath will come upon them. We are called to subdue and have dominion over the earth for God's glory, not our own. But even the trees and the animals were ravaged by their war. Though God's glory would fill the earth, Babylon's glory would be covered with shame. And so he condemns those that would loosen the inhibitions of others so they would become prey. This means the seducer and the rapist and the pornographer and the consumer will end up themselves exposed and naked and ashamed. The Chaldeans were idolatrous. And he begins by saying that, that the idol maker literally trusts in the work of his own hands when he makes an idol. But that money, power, national security, these were the gods of the Babylonians. They worshiped their national empire. And he compares the palaces of men with the heavenly realm, the temple of the holy God. And he compares the silence of these, these inert idols made of wood and metal that cannot talk to the God who speaks and rules over all that he can command to be silent before him. And so he denounces those that worship the business they've built, the lifestyle they've protected, the body they've shaped, the reputation they've created, that they will find death, not life, in their worship. And this is not unique to the Babylonian Empire. For each evil desire, they will in the same way be torn apart by. And that's, that is the way, that is the nature of how sin works. It is attractive and alluring, and yet it's devastating by its same means. All right, chapter 3, this song of praise that was to be sung in the temple. Verse 2 says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He knows God has revealed now his plan to use the Chaldeans to come upon Judah. And he asked that it would be merciful, appealing to God's mighty deeds in the past. He asked God to again be present, to be active like he was in the times of Moses. Verses 3 to 7, he, he begins describing the powerful and the terrifying appearances of God, uh, God's judgment in the Old Testament. He uses imagery from God's present, presence at the Exodus from Egypt, at the giving of the law on Mount Sinai, and the conquest of Canaan. These are all examples of God confronting human evil. These are all examples of God protecting and leading His people. And so, God's Shekinah glory is described like a fire and cloud that led Israel through the wilderness. 
that plagues and pestilence and earthquakes will come against anyone who would oppose God. Habakkuk continues, verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? Skipping down to verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear, you marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. And so God has power over the earth and the sea and the sun and the moon. And Habakkuk, he reminisces at God's triumph over violent nations, the Philistines and the Amorites and Pharaoh. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from, thick to th from thigh to neck, Salah. And so God will save his people, and God will save his anointed one, the future Messiah, the king from the line of David, the tribe of Judah. And Habakkuk points us to these past exoduses, pointing to a future exodus where God will defeat evil once and for all. It is through faith in God's ability to lead Israel against fierce and powerful armies from exile, from slavery to freedom and the promised land that Habakkuk sings God's praises. He has hope because over and over again, God is the rescuer of his oppressed people. God will bring justice. And so, Habakkuk responds, verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no flock, the flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. He's concerned. He's worried. The war or drought or famine may come, and this is not insignificant in an agrarian culture. This is the reality of hunger and poverty and death. Yet in verse 18, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And so he trusted and he found joy, not in his circumstances, but in the Lord himself. Habakkuk had become a picture of, an example of the righteous living by faith. And so his faith enabled him to endure the hardships of the coming invasion, as well as the anxiety and the fear that comes from not knowing what God is doing. Trusting God, though you don't know what His plan fully is, but that God will one day deal with its evil. So, as I was going through this, I hope you see uh, or experience Habakkuk's fear, uh, his struggle with this idea that what is God doing? What is God, how is God using evil? Why does God allow evil? And so, one of the questions inherent to uh, the book of Habakkuk is this idea of the problem of evil. And so maybe you're not a Christian, but you're struggling with the problem of evil. Why would a supposedly good and all-powerful God either allow evil or be incapable of stopping it? I would first point out that the outrage at injustice and tyranny and intolerance is a good thing. It means that you think there's something universally wrong with the world that it should be otherwise, that something is morally broken. And I would agree. But the only answer for an objective moral law is God. And so, ironically, the existence of evil is an argument for the existence of God. And it's sometimes called the moral argument for God. It's a syllogism, and it goes like this. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. Where would they come from if not God? But evil exists. And, and our outrage culture, uh, our culture that is uh, offended 
and outraged at everything, right? At least it helps us in this regard that the people are passionate and people see that there are things that are wrong and people see that there's injustice and people see that there is evil. But the reality is that because evil exists, moral, objective moral values exist. And if there are objective moral values that are, that are binding to everyone, that are over everyone, that are universal, that are transcendent, where do those come from? Laws have to come from a lawgiver, and so therefore God exists. But as Christians, our problem of evil is often that we, we believe that God exists, but we want God to ask, ju act justly, but just not in our lives, right? We want to see justice, but for us. And we want to see our enemies taken down in our way. And we want it done in our time, uh, which of course is right away. But God doesn't always do that. He's God. He's not our genie. And so Habakkuk could wait patiently, quietly for the day of trouble because he knew that God would judge righteously. He knew that God would judge rightly because God is perfectly good, that he would take action because God is all-powerful, and that God was aware of injustice and would act in the perfect time because God is all-knowing. All right, there's this idea of unanswered prayer that we see in Habakkuk as well. He's pleading out to the, to the injustice that is going around him. And if you're anything like me, you get accustomed, you get used to the way that God works in your life. And as long as he keeps working that way, it's, it's, it's pretty easy to trust him. But the moment changes, maybe an unanswered prayer, or maybe an answered prayer, but just not the way you like it. Maybe he allows you to go through a difficult set of circumstances. How do you react? Do you get nervous, anxious? Do you start complaining? Do you get upset? I think as Christians, we, we can have unrealistic expectations when it comes to prayer. And we see miracles in Scripture. And God is absolutely capable and has provided these miraculous events in the lives of some in Scripture. And these include uh, these ideas of immediate healing. They pray and they are healed. These ideas that, that people are, are given wealth, that they're made whole that there are personal triumphs, successes that are prayed for and God gives it to them. It's a miracle. God, take me out of this trial and God does it. He rescues them. Displays of God's power. God, bring down the fire and He does. Bringing back people from the dead. God can do that, and God has done that. And here's the thing, I'm not saying don't pray for God to do a miracle, but His response is not dependent on how good of a person you are or how hard you pray. Yes, He hears the prayers of the righteous. Yes, He's a good Father. Yes, His faith will empower you to do amazing things for the kingdom. But what matters is if that miracle is part of God's plan. And denying you may be for your benefit. It may be shaping you. It may be growing you, though you can't see it at the time. Now, there are miracles that we see in Scripture that are created by the gospel. The good news that you're a sinner separated from God and earning nothing but debt, but have been rescued by the King and are His. And so, through Christ's death, life, death, and resurrection, you are forgiven and you are made righteous before a perfect God. Here are the miracles that are promised in Scripture. Here are the miracles through the gospel when you are faithful to hear it preached, receive it, stand in it, and are saved by it. God promises that we will be able to persevere in pain, that we can have contentment, and God would change our hearts, the miracle of our hard hearts being changed to a heart that is humble, that we would be able to endure any trial. You, a rebel, would be able to love and give glory to God is a miracle. 
and that you would have life after death. And so you can see that God doesn't always grant us wealth or wholeness, but He grants us contentment. And God doesn't always end our trials, but He gives us the ability to endure them. We don't always uh, get to show our unbelieving friends displays of God's power, but God will use us to show them through our lives that He is good and true and beautiful. If you begin to believe that God has not answered your prayer, that God has not promised, uh, that God has not answered your prayer because of your goodness, that God has not answered your prayer because of your faith, you'll be distraught, you'll be depressed. Jesus, knowing that He would endure humiliation, torture, and death, He prays that the Father's will be done. And the Father's will in this case was that evil men would do their worst to the Son of God for our sake. You can see Habakkuk's struggle with doubt. Habakkuk at its root is the word embrace. And so Habakkuk means the embracer. And we definitely see him wrestle with and grapple with God, not in a sinful way, but engaging with God, pleading with Him for good things, that justice would be done, that God's name would be magnified. But in the end, we see Habakkuk embrace. He holds on tightly to the promises of God, even when he doesn't understand God's means or God's plan in full. He is the hugger. He is the man of faith, trusting in God and His goodness. So Habakkuk goes to God in prayer with his doubt. He wrestles with God over his inability to see God at work in his life. But even in his doubt, we see, we see his faith. Because Habakkuk believed that God was real, that God could do something about the injustices that he saw, and that the injustice that he saw was inconsistent with God's character, which is good and right and creative, not destructive. And so our thoughts and our feelings about God, they're, they're exactly that. Their thoughts and feelings, despite what our current culture tells us, our current culture, our current culture tells us uh, that every thought and feeling we have is valid and true and to be embraced. As Christians, we simply cannot take every passing impulse for granted to be true. As Christians, we are called to put those ideas to the test of Scripture and ask, are they in fact true? If you're in doubt, seek God, wrestle with Him. God blesses those who wrestle with Him. Wrestle with Him. Wrestle with His words. Get help from other believers who will encourage you and because of their experience, help disciple you. All right, what is this? What do we do with this? How do we apply this to our lives? What does this mean for us? Again, Habakkuk, I think, shows us that we are to live by faith even when we don't understand what God is doing. And so let's take a, a closer look at Habakkuk 2.4. And it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And so there's this immediate prophetic um, sense in which this is absolutely true. Um, it's certainly true that the self-righteous Babylonians uh, are going to be destroyed, and that the righteous remnant of Israel will survive. And so, this is a prophecy. God prophesies, Habakkuk writes it down, and it comes to be. There's also uh, this sense in which this is godly wisdom or a blessing to us, that wicked paths lead to death and defeat in the path of the righteous by faith lead to life and victory. And so, if we live by faith and that we, that we trust God's ways, that God's ways are the best ways, if we trust His commands, it's actually a blessing and it's a protection for us. And so, we can see uh, Psalm 1, verses 1 to 6, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. 
The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so, this should give us peace. And I think it gives Habakkuk peace, and it gives him confidence, and it allows him to trust God despite his fear and his anxiety. And so, Paul in the New Testament, he refers to this verse. He refers to Habakkuk's promise in both his letter to the church in Rome and to the church in Galatia. And we're going to look at uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so Paul links Habakkuk 2.4 to the gospel, to the good news that we're saved from sin and death by trusting in Christ's perfect life, sacrificial death, and powerful resurrection resurrection. And Paul emphasizes the gospel is dependent uh, on our faith in Christ, not on our ability to do good. Paul reveals that this righteousness is manifested by Christ's obedience, that it comes through trusting in Jesus Christ. It is available to all who believe, and it's apart from the law, meaning our ability to earn it. And so, it's, this passage is, is true in this third sense this descriptive or, or, or theological sense that apart from Christ, we're not righteous, but puffing ourselves up like the Babylonians. And so, because God is just and a righteous judge, our sin has been paid for, not excused. Because God is merciful, He has paid the price. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, so, in that, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so, not only is our sin imputed to Christ, but a Christ's righteousness is imputed to us through faith. To impute something is to me, means to assign or to credit something to someone else. And so, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to sinners who trust in Him. God considers the righteousness of Christ as belonging to the believer. And that is how Christ paid our sin debt. He had no sin in Himself, but our sin is imputed to Him, so that as He suffered on the cross, He suffered the just penalty for, that our sin deserves. But that's only half of our problem. Yes, we absolutely need forgiveness, but that would only put us back at the starting line. That would bring us back up to zero. But, the, but then we would have to remain perfect, and that's a huge problem for us. So, by having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us, we are not only forgiven of our debt of sin, but also credited the perfect life that Christ lived. So, that the writer of Hebrews says, for by a single offering, He being Jesus has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, those who are set apart from sin, the holy, that's us, believers in Christ, when we trust in God for our righteousness, we're seen as perfect in the eyes of God. We are seen as sinless as Jesus is sinless. And so, it's not therefore our ability to be perfect, but Christ's. And we are recognized as being in this condition of permanent, continual holiness. It also means that those who try to live apart from Christ are puffed up, self-righteous, Paul says, ignorant of the reality that righteousness can only come by faith. And so, there is no middle ground. There is no neutral position. If you're not trusting in God's righteousness, then you're trusting in your own, and you will fall far short, and that is a dangerous place to be. And so, maybe you don't see yourself as opposed to God. You attend church, maybe you come uh, to support a loved one, maybe you're coming to not make waves to not ruffle feathers. You might even have some good friends that are in the body of Christ, but you've never trusted in Christ. Look, everybody trusts in something. We were created for worship. It's inherent to who we are, but if it's anything other than God Himself, you're an idolater. And so, do you think, what's the big deal if I steal something now and again? 
Or, so I gained something from a shady deal. World isn't fair, I'm just getting what's due me. Life's a party, come on over to the dark side. So I use people to get what I want. That's their fault for being so gullible. You may not be destroying and pillaging like the Babylonians, but you are living this life for your glory. You are trusting in your abilities, in your successes, stealing the credit from God, the giver of all good things, and you're storing up God's wrath and will be separated from God's common grace for eternity. Now, what do I mean by that? God's common grace. It means that in this life, there are entanglements and there are sorrows that we will experience in this fallen world that will no longer be present in heaven. There are also benefits of God's limited presence. And we live in a good world that He created, and that will no longer be present in hell. And that means that this world is the closest to hell that any believer will experience. But it also means that this world is the closest to heaven that any non-believer will experience. And I hope that this either brings you great comfort or great distress. The final way this is true is in this prescriptive or, or applicable uh, way. What does it mean to apply this verse? Living by faith means living lives of trust. The author of Hebrews quotes uh, this verse as an encouragement to Christians who are being persecuted to fix their eyes on Christ and to persist in trusting Him. He says, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And so, uh, we who are adopted children of the King, we need to live lives of trust in Him, in His promises, in His goodness. There's a difference between knowing that these things are true and living lives that actually submit to God and commit to His ways. And so for some, this is, means letting go of things, letting God be in control. For others, it means taking a hold of some things, that you are like a boat adrift in the ocean, controlled by the wind and the sea. A life lived by faith will be intentional. It'll be repentant, turning from sin, running to the cross, being conformed to the image of Christ, and bearing the fruits of the Spirit until we pass from the, this existence into the next. A life lived by faith, trust that we'll be, we have been saved from sin, and that eternal and abundant life is here and will last forever. It means trusting that justice will be done, that God is a God of mercy, and that He has empowered us to endure whatever may come. I know I'm going over. I apologize. But for the church, we should be encouraged, and we should be marked by the opposite characteristics of the Chaldeans. They were marked by theft. We, as the body of Christ, should be marked by generous giving. They were marked by selfishness and injustice. The church should be about honesty, about just dealing, about a concern for righteousness. They were violent criminals. We are to be about the mutual care for one another. The Chaldeans were about debauchery and exploitation. We are to be about a mutual encouragement. They used others for their own pleasure. We are to be about building one another up. They were about idolatry, and we are to worship the one true God as taught by His Word. And so Habakkuk didn't see the fulfillment of God's plan. He didn't see it in his lifetime. But here's the kicker. Neither will you, unless Jesus returns real soon. Like Habakkuk, we are in the in-between. God has laid out His plan for redemption, but it has not been fulfilled. And so Habakkuk realized that God wasn't just to be worshipped because of His temporal blessings, wasn't to be worshiped just because of the good stuff he gave him, but for his own sake. He found joy, and it was well with his soul. Habakkuk lived by faith. And even when we don't understand what God is doing, how much more, even though Habakkuk didn't understand, how much more do we understand through the revelation of the New Testament that Christ 
is the fulfillment of God's mercy for His people, and that by faith we are to trust in Him. We can watch all the reality TV we want to try and make ourselves feel better, but ultimately comparing ourselves to others just makes us puffed up, makes us self-righteous. The only saving righteousness is imputed to us by faith in the Savior God. And so God is just, and He is the justifier of those that put their faith in Him, trust in Him. The final outcome of history will be worship of the Holy One, the Holy King. There is no neutrality. The destiny of all nations and individuals will be determined by their attitude toward God. There is only faithful, persevering dependence on Him or prideful rejection. Let me pray. God, we thank You uh, for Your Word. We want to be people who live uh, righteously and that we would trust in You, trust in Your commands, that we would be obedient, that we would be intentional about our lives, God. We are only righteous because of Your Son. We are unrighteous who have been given righteousness. God, that You would see us as You see Him. And God, let us live lives of joy. Let us live lives uh, of gospel loving and serving. God, we thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.